0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. On September the 9th, 2021, on a warm and sunny day in San Francisco, it's lovely here. But all is not right in America. I don't think that's going to come as news to any of you. Uh, But there's something very odd going on. And it's something I want to explore uh, with my guest today on the show. The headlines are kind of weird in a way. Uh, They don't make sense. Or perhaps they they make all too much sense. One headline today is that 800,000 New Yorkers just lost their federal unemployment benefits uh and that's of course those numbers that that's from the times those numbers are much larger around the country uh joe biden for one reason or other perhaps he has other things on his mind didn't push back on it um and these people are going back into the workforce uh the good news uh according um to a very prominent economist writing in the new york times is there's a labor shortage. So presumably those people those people being pushed back in the market because of the changes in the unemployment law would have jobs. But that's not the case. Uh, the, the, another Times headline today is that when jobless benefits were cut, jobs are still hard to find. As a kind of structural crisis, it would seem, in the American economy, this is from David Orte, a very distinguished economist at MIT from that Times piece, um, we're in a weird situation in the labor market in the U S where there are more job openings than unemployed workers. And yet they're not being filled. Uh, here we have an image from, um, uh, the U S Bureau of labor statistics, the hockey stick, but no one's filling those jobs. Um, one reason is workers don't want their old jobs back, but it's more than that. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, um, Uh, The the Wall Street Journal has a nice piece on this. They say job openings are at record highs. Why aren't unemployed Americans filling them? Uh, And they respond is that uh, it's hard to match laid off workers with jobs, perhaps because American workers aren't prepared. My guest today in her new book, Equity, writes about this, perhaps indirectly, but I think she touches on it. A couple of sentences Uh, She writes, but with inequity built into our education system, uh, we continue not only to produce inequitable outcomes, but also to extract talent from other countries to fill gaps in our labor needs. It's an irony. We don't have enough jobs in this country, and yet we're also becoming increasingly anti-immigrant. She says this is systemic inequality, and the system was designed this way. So perhaps we have a structural crisis um, my guest today on the show is uh, Minal uh, Bapaya. She's the author of a new book called Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. Now, her book isn't primarily about employment or unemployment, but I think the book really does make sense of this weird structural crisis in America. And I'm thrilled that um, Minal is joining us from her home just outside Washington, D.C., uh, you know, perhaps you might unravel this paradox in the context of your new book, Equity.
1: Sure. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. And I, I'd love to dive into that. Um, if I, I and I'll just sort of tell a, a quick story that might help make sense of what I think is happening. So my parents came to this country in August of 1976 with one suitcase and $20 and my mother pregnant with me. And they found their way uh, out of the airport to Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where they had medical residencies established. And they tell the stories of those early days of working in New York in the 70s, where financial mismanagement and a very racist war on crime created into an, an atmosphere of almost civil war there. My father was shocked that as a doctor who had previously worked in England, that he had seen more gunshot wounds in one night in the ER than he had seen in four years of surgical residency. And my mother tells stories of not only sleeping on the floor on a sleeping bag, but about how half of the residents were mugged because most of the people living with addiction had been pushed to the margins of society instead of invited into the hospital for treatment. Somehow they found their way out of there into the greener suburbs of Staten Island, they bought a home, they bought an office building, they started a private practice, they provided for their families, they sent two kids to college debt-free, my father made New York Magazine's list of best doctors eight times, and by all outward effect, lived the American dream, or so that would be the story that we would normally tell in America about people overcoming obstacles and working hard, but If we zoom out, we're able to see that the system actually supported their success in critical ways during that pathway. First of all, the only reason they were able to come to this country in 1976 is because in 1965, the Civil Rights Movement, which was predominantly organized and advocated for by Black Americans, advocated for the passage of a new Immigration Act. In 1965, that act, said that visas and green cards need to be distributed according to family ties to people in the country or labor needs. Before 1965, the US had an explicit policy of granting visas and green cards in order to preserve the homogeneity of North America, meaning the white majority. So it doesn't matter how smart or hardworking my parents were before 1965, they probably wouldn't have been let into this country, right? So that's one systemic advantage. The second systemic advantage is that even though that act was more inclusive and more equitable, there were still some inequitable applications of that act. Namely, the U.S. immigration system started to take advantage of socialized education in other countries to fill their labor shortages. So in the 60s and 70s, there was a perceived doctor shortage. It's not really clear whether there actually was a shortage of doctors or not, but it was perceived. And so the U.S. immigration system um, prioritized people who got educated in other countries to become doctors um, at very low cost. So my parents come from very humble beginnings, both of them. And the family lore is that it costs about $50 a semester for them to go to medical school in India. They They then did their residency there and then did it again in England. Now... They also created more obstacles for those sorts of doctors in that my parents, after having done their residency twice, had to do it a third time because the American Medical College doesn't recognize foreign medical graduates uh, who have done residencies abroad. So then they lost um, income earning years and had to repeat those four years while after giving, my mother actually relatively soon after giving birth to me and then my brother. But I bring this up about socialized education in other countries because when we hold uh, Indians or Asians as a model minority, minority, it's a very disingenuous argument. It is an argument predicated on anti-Blackness and the belief that in comparison to model minorities, there are problem minorities. However, model minorities who are usually immigrants were given the advantage or the privilege of socialized education in their home countries that the U.S. took advantage of. And I firmly believe that if the U.S. provided socialized education to all of its citizens, you would see just as many U.S. born citizens uh, with poor parents and dark skin who become doctors as you do in the Indian diaspora. And the reason we don't is because the U.S. has a very weird education system where we fund our education based on property taxes. That is completely bizarre. And not just from an Indian perspective. Almost all other countries, including our European allies like Germany, fund their schools based on a general tax revenue and then distribute it per capita, not per neighborhood or per zip code.
0: So, I mean, now let's go back to the book because this is a wonderful... You, your, your response is wonderful. You, you said... Um... You said exactly what uh, I wanted you to say, uh, but much more in a much more articulate, coherent way than I could have said it myself. Uh, your book is called Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. Um, what you're describing, I think, in America is an inequitable system. And you have this wonderful diagram uh, in your book, uh, distinguishing visually learning to ride a bike between equality and equity. Why did you choose this word equity rather than equality yeah. uh, in your book? And why have you built uh, your theory of justice around equity rather than equality?
1: Yeah. So justice requires both, just so we're clear. Um, in So in brief, equality is when everyone gets the same thing. Equity is when people get what they need to participate fully based on their differences, right? So if we go back to that image, we see that that first row of uh, equality, everybody in that first row has been given the same bicycle, right? But clearly it only works for the third figure from the left, the woman. The little kid on the far right is struggling. The very tall man, uh, second to left, is also struggling. And the person in the wheelchair can't even get on the bike, right? And this is our inherent bias. This is the bias baked into our system in America. We believe that if we find a solution that works for one person, that there is somehow a default human being. And therefore, we can scale that to every human being. And we do not take into account the differences that people have, right? Now, that's not to say that equality isn't sometimes the right answer because uh, during the LGBT movement they there were some people who were advocating for civil unions. um, But the most LGBT groups said, no, we need marriage equality. We need the exact same institution for same sex couples in order for this to be fair. So there are times when we want uh, the same thing for everyone. But then there are also times like in our education system, if there is a child with a learning disorder, then equity says that that child is entitled to uh, extra extra private time with the teacher or a tutor in order to learn how to read at the level of his peers or her peers, right? So what equity, what, what justice really requires is our ability to engage in discernment and wisdom when we are applying solutions,
0: let's uh, let's let's let me quote another uh, excellent paragraph from your book, uh, Amina. Um, you're writing about America, but not just America. You make it clear that America, in some ways, is is is, is typical of, of other countries. You write. When we confront the fact that the founding fathers designed a system that benefited white men who owned property above all others, we begin to see the legacy of that design in our institutions, government systems and organization. Um, to be fair, designing for inequity isn't an American invention. Um, uh, from European colonialism to India's Vedic caste system, designing for inequity appeals universally to those who are threatened. This idea of design is key to your book. Uh, are you writing as a designer, as a social reformer, um, as an artist? What do you mean by the word design?
1: Yeah. So design is it, it's a it's an interesting word because I think most people think of graphic design, right? They think of making something beautiful, but design is really so. IBM used to design used to define design as the intent behind an outcome, right? So if we get an outcome, what was the intent that led to that? So that's why I talk about how the founding fathers had an intent to create a society that would benefit them and people like them above all others.
0: Is that, I mean, everyone does that, don't they? Whether they're whites or blacks, women, men.
1: I think for most of human history, everyone has done that. And I think we're at a turning point in human history where we're understanding that that what got us here will not get us to where we want to be. That this idea that we are only going to serve our own egocentric um, interests and not take care of one another um, as a human race, as, a, as an ecosystem, as a planet, will not work in the long run. You have three
0: rules. Um, sorry, you have uh, three rules for designing for equity in the book. Um, you know, uh, perhaps we might go through them individually. Uh, the first, and I'm quoting you: differences between individuals and groups are valued, not demonized or minimized. Minimalized. Um, perhaps you might talk about that first rule first.
1: Yeah. So there, um, there is a lot of research to show that the the human brain, and I'm not, there's some argument whether we are wired this way or whether we've been socialized this way, but then when faced with differences, it elicits a fear response. We're so afraid of difference that it triggers almost fight or flight where we try to get out of it or we try to like find common ground right away, right? And this is what you hear sometimes with politicians where they're like, we have more in common than we have different. Like. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. Like, why why do we need to say that, right? Can you be different from me and can I still care about you, right? Can we not be threatened or afraid of difference, but instead embrace it and say, yeah, actually it's great that you're different from me because you're able to do all these things that actually are not my strengths. And I can rely on you and trust you to do those things. And then you can trust me to do the things I'm good at. So it's a much more relational model the reason that's threatening is because we have such such a bias in this country such a belief in rugged individualism where we can all just go at it uh, uh, like on our own by ourselves and we don't need anybody that we can all be Exceptional at our jobs and exceptional at personal finance and exceptional at health and exceptional at like all of the things you need to do to manage like a society as like individual like automatons and and we can't. That is simply not true. That idea of rugged individualism is actually a myth. Because the truth is that we are interdependent. We all have some level of sovereignty. And then we all have some level of relation to one another where the decisions we make for ourselves affect other people. And
0: it's it's all in some ways, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the show. It's about love. Um, mm-hmm. You dedicate your book to your brother. You say, my flaws are mine and mine alone. But all my goodness is because of you. You mention him also in the book. At one point in his life, he had some some problems and you had to put him on your uh, health system and it resulted in some uh,
1: well, contradictions
0: because of the weakness of the health system. Uh, but is it about loving difference? You and your brother are probably quite different, but you're kin.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are very different and I do think it's about um, I, I do think it's about loving difference uh, if you can get there. I think sometimes as a pragmatist, I may shy away from the word love because I think there are people who are very comfortable talking about um, things at that heart-based level and then there are people who may not be as comfortable with that sort of language or think that that language detracts um, from the the power of the argument let's right? go uh
0: let's let's move on to your second uh your 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 your, your second role for designing mm-hmm. for equity uh and this is a really interesting one because it touches on a lot of shows we've done uh you're right people with power can see systems and how they influence opportunities for others you're suggesting um rethinking power and this really uh this really resonated with me last week we had the harvard uh business school professor julie uh, Batilana on the show uh, she's the co-author of a really interesting book that sort of dovetails very much with yours called power for all in which she's in favor of a a rethinking of power within the organization. So so talk to me about how people with power, particularly within organizations, need to rethink their roles and indeed the nature of power.
1: Yeah, I think power, uh, kind of like love, like these can be words that trigger instant feelings amongst people. And what I've noticed is that either people have notions of power that are sort of, oh, power is really about this Machiavellian concept. And that often really triggers them into saying, well, then I don't want to talk about it. And a lot of people who try to be egalitarian minded like to sort of deflect and say, yeah, no, we all have power. We can all be empowered. And while that's true, we are not all empowered to the same level, particularly in an organization. If you hold a position of authority, you have more power. If you are the CEO, you have the power to redesign your entire organization at your whim, and your entry level employee does not. So, in order to actually use power wisely and responsibly, we have to admit and own that we have it. We have to actually be able to talk about it. And my favorite saying about talking about the unmentionables is actually something from the Fred Rogers movie that says, you know, anything mentionable is manageable if we can mention it, we can then manage power more effectively. But if we can't even talk about it, then we're not going to be able to get anywhere.
0: And let's move to the third um, rule. Uh, People, and and this is really an outgrowth of the second, people with power want to create more opportunity so everyone can thrive with their differences intact. Do you have some examples of that where people with power have indeed done that? Your book is full of these examples. Some Connected with what you've been doing, some um, independent of yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the most inclusive leaders are the ones that are aware of their power and want to create a more fair system for everyone. Uh, And and that they're able to see the system, right, to see that it's not really working for everyone. Uh, It can be anybody from, you know, the Starbucks Uh, leadership who have decided to help people go back to college because they realize that college isn't affordable for people. Uh, It can be the managing partners that I mentioned in the book, Bob Etrus and Jack Moore, who have created a wonderful culture at Evans Consulting that's really human-centered and acknowledges that people have various commitments in their life you know, and doesn't require that people punch a clock um, or that people just produce, 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 and that they don't take time for themselves. Uh, And that means that If you're going to create a culture where people are allowed to um, really nurture their whole being, then you can absolutely be profitable, but then you may not be going for profit maximization, right? Instead, you might be going for financial sustainability because if people can actually nurture themselves, then you have a more resilient workforce that can meet challenges with more um, agility. And then you also have a financial model that can be able to withstand the pressure, the external pressures that we're all feeling and do well in the long run, even though it may mean that you get less short-term gain.
0: Mina, there is a there is a gorilla in the room here. Sure. Uh, you mentioned Starbucks. Yeah. And. I'm not an expert on Starbucks, but my <laughs> sense is that they're very good at catching on to some of the, yeah. the more fashionable phrases and using them to present themselves as a progressive, fair, perhaps equitable company. But at the same time, uh, Starbucks, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a headline, Starbucks is not allowing Uh, people who work at Starbucks to join unions. I don't want to make this into a conversation about Starbucks because I I don't think either of us are are well-equipped enough to discuss them. But it does speak to a broader issue at the heart of your book. You seem to be presenting equity, which I don't think anyone would argue with, as something that can be achieved within for-profit organizations. Mm -hmm. Uh, You quote, for example, my old friend Rebecca Henderson in your book, From Harvard Business School, she's been on on a number of my shows. She's very optimistic that Mm -hmm. capitalism and capitalist organizations can reform themselves to produce the equity you want. We also had the um, Anglo-Israeli entrepreneur and investor Ronnie Cohen on the show recently, Mm. who believes that the architecture of 21st century capitalism can indeed be reorganized. We've had many other people on the show political leftists who don't believe capitalism can be reformed and organizations, perhaps like Starbucks, are not the right vehicles for mm. designing equity. Are you in the Rebecca Henderson, Ronnie Cohen camp when it comes to perhaps reforming capitalism as the key vehicle for establishing equity in society?
1: Um. I am probably of a more nuanced mindset, so I don't believe that capitalism is a panacea for all the world's problems. I've worked in the nonprofit space, where there's been a lot of talk in recent decades about market solutions to, you know, global health problems. I like, I think, and and part of this is because you know my parents came from India because India, right after independence, had a socialized economy. And that gave them very little opportunity as two people who weren't like networked through their families and who actually left their families um, in order to elope, right? Like they, without that relationship, you couldn't get anywhere. And so there are uh, virtues to capitalism. There are virtues to socialism. There are flaws to capitalism. There are flaws to socialism. And the economic model should not be put over and above the purpose of the organization. And why I say that is because there are certain industries that I believe should not be capitalistic, such as healthcare and education. Healthcare and education should be social endeavors that fundamentally cost us in the short term because they um, guarantee the health and longevity of our population in the long term. And it is a deferred benefit when we invest in healthcare and education, you are not gonna see good quarterly returns on healthcare and education. And if you are, you're possibly doing it wrong. And my parents who were physicians would back me up on that. They were never profit maximizing physicians, right? But there are other fields that I think um, some amount of, There are the virtues of capitalism is that it allows for like sort of creativity and breaking in and trying new innovative things. Um And so there are some fields where I think that that is the right approach, uh, where I think that capitalism so capitalism that is human-centered, that is, you know, Edgar Villanueva, who wrote Decolonizing Wealth, talks about ma- money as medicine. Right now, we have a predatory capitalist economy that uses money as a weapon. We use it to think that we own people. We use it to either emotionally blackmail or explicitly blackmail people. We use it as a way to like either bludgeon or cajole people into being more and more productive, even past the point of burnout. We use it to trap uh, people in bad marriages because they can't afford to leave, right? We don't use it in a way that actually heals us as a society. We don't use it as medicine. And if capitalism used money as medicine, then I think it has a huge potential to solve some of the world's problems that we're seeing.
0: What about the role of family, Minal, in in equity? You begin your book with a wonderful description of your parents' arrival in New York City. You've talked about them a lot in this conversation. I'm quoting on a bright August day in 1976, my Indian parents arrived in New York City with one suitcase, $20, and my mother pregnant with me. They were, in a sense, as you acknowledge, disadvantaged, and in a sense, highly advantaged because they had an excellent education. They produced you and your brother, and you're obviously entirely dependent on them for your own, well, not entirely, but a lot of your success, your achievements, your ability to navigate the world is because of them. Not everyone had those natural benefits how do we create equity within the family for people who don't have your good fortune to be born to such responsible hard-working parents
1: yeah i mean my parents were all of those things and as an immigrant when you come to this country you have no network so i didn't go into medicine so my entire career has been independent of their successes right not my education not how smart i am not things like that but my career was through a lot of me trying to figure stuff out like I didn't have the advantage of a parent who had worked in business or who had worked in organizational development who could like guide me and tell me how to do these things so um, you didn't need
0: that I mean you're smart enough and you you're you're responsible enough and well educated enough you can develop
1: I mean, that's me now at 44. I think there's an argument about me at 23 that might say otherwise. (laughs) I guess you
0: could have become a doctor. Did they try to make you into a doctor?
1: Oh, absolutely. And you had to be a
0: little bit of a rebel too.
1: rip roaring arguments for many years about me not becoming a doctor, Um, because in their mind, that was the only path to financial security. Right. Because in India, if you weren't a professional, your life was really, really hard because there was no middle class back in their generation. Now there is. And so there's more options. And so, you know, family is a tricky subject. I don't know how to really address it because um, I have the fortune of having good parents. I also know that Um, I've also, you know, spent a lot, because I have a master's in clinical psych, I've also spent a lot of years in therapy, and I believe I have a good relationship with my parents because I was brave enough to go to therapy and address things. I think that there's also limits to that. Some people get dealt a a bad hand, um, and no amount of therapy will be able to address the rifts, and so you know, in in brevity and wit, we really talk like our organizational values. Yeah, are, yeah
0: brevity and wit. To be clear for people who don't know Mina, uh, Mina's work, uh, your that's your consultancy, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And our organizational values really boil down to two: sovereignty and interdependence. Because that's really what this work is about. That people need the sovereignty to be able to make decisions that are in their best interest that might be different from what everybody else is doing. Just like I was like, nope, med school is not for me. But then there's also this idea of interdependence that the decisions we make affect other people. And so I have to understand that I have the right to say med school is not for me. Um, But then I also felt when I was very young, maybe not at this age, if I'm gonna make a decision that upsets my parents, I need to be able to have a conversation with them. I need to be able to engage with them and understand what their concerns may be. And that doesn't mean I have to change my decision, but my decision then affects them. right?
0: In a sense, then, in a funny way, Minal, you are stealing one of your headlines. Uh, you and your parents in sort of unofficially are co-creating an equitable world. Finally, um, we had the great Greek economist, the progressive left-wing, uh, neo-Marxist uh, <laughs> economist Yanis Varoufakis on the show at the beginning of the week. He's the former economics minister in Greece. He has a, uh, a science fiction, I guess it's a utopian book out called Another Now, imagining a, a fairer, more equitable world in 2036. Why don't you put on your Varoufakis cap for a moment? Imagine 2036. If there was equity in America, what would the country look like?
1: So I will say this with a caveat, right, that um, saying you want to accomplish equity is a bit like telling me you want to end crime or, like, solve accounting. Um, Equity and inclusion are values that need to be stewarded just like justice, right? Like, we don't ever, like, set up, you know, a justice system thinking that we're going to end all crime we know that these are values that we need to steward. So in my mind, a really equitable society in 2036 would have institutions and policies that steward equity at all levels of our society so that we would look to make sure that our schools are funded in such a way that every kid has a fair shot, right? We would look to ensure that our healthcare system is set up in such a way that everyone is not, that no one is blamed for their illness, that people receive care regardless of their employment status or their marriage status or their family status, and that they receive quality care that ensures their health so that they can live their life. Um, In a way that actually contributes to the greater good and contributes to their own happiness, right, That we need equity in order to have the pursuit of happiness. And I I would love an America that could understand that, that equity and inclusion is in pursuit of all of our American values of justice, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
0: Well, I think many people will agree with uh, Minal's conclusion that we need equity. And if you want equity in the short term, or at least if you want to think about equity, you need to get her new book. It's a short, very readable, very interesting, pithy book, Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. Congratulations, uh, uh, Minal, on the book. Uh, I know you're in your office or at home just outside uh, Washington, D.C., uh, on your website, you have some book recommendations for us to read. So in addition to uh, equity, what else should people be reading in these strange times where we're still not entirely sure whether we should be going out?
1: Yeah. So um, as you said, on uh, theequitybook.com, there's a section called Minnell's Bookshelf. There's I lots can't... of books
0: on it, but we went to the bottom. We we <laughs> found three books on your list. Perhaps you can briefly talk about all of them. Made to yes. stick. Racism in American Public Life, an Inclusive Leader.
1: Yes. So uh, Made to Stick is a great book by Chip and Dan Heath about how to communicate effectively. I was really pleased that Dan, uh, who also co-authored the book Switch and authored the book Upstream, gave an endorsement for the book. And I am big fans of the Heath brothers. Everything that they put out is Yeah, I
0: need to get those guys. uh, I know those guys. I need to get them on my show.
1: (laughs) And then How to Be Inclusive leaders is by my friend Jennifer Brown, who is also a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner and is also a great short read. And then Racism in American Public Life is by my mentor and personal shero, Dr. Janetta Betch-Cole. Dr. Cole was born in the, uh, the Jim Crow South and um, ended up being the first African-American woman president of Spelman College in 1987, which is a bit late. She also ended up being the director of one of the Smithsonian museums and now leads the National Council of Negro Women. She is also a trained anthropologist. And so she has an exceptional anthropological lens on, America, on American society and race and racism. And so if there is one book that I could recommend that is also a very short read, but will blow your mind, it is that one, Racism in American Public Life by Dr. Janetta Betch-Cole.
0: Yeah, that looks like a great one. Racism in American Public Life, A Call to Action um, by Janetta Betch. Well, thank you so much, Minal uh, um, uh, uh, Bapaya. Uh, I hope I haven't mangled your name.
1: Nope, not Just at Just like all. papaya,
0: Bapaya, Minal Bapaya. Uh, wonderful conversation. Excellent new book, Equity. Keep well. Keep fighting for equity. Keep raising your voice. We need you, Minal. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.